Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. And we're continuing our series, His Story, sort of God's story with the human family. I've entitled our message today, The Choice. One video version of the NPR radio show captured the story of a prize-winning photojournalist. At one point, he soberly confessed that many photojournalists remain spectators when they observe and record the misfortunes of others. Then he told the interviewer a disturbing story about an incident in which he personally continued snapping pictures as a woman eventually drowned. He says, I was sent out on an assignment from when I was working for the Lawrence Eagle Tribune and they wanted pictures of a coastal storm. So I went out to nearby Plum Island and I walked out on the beach and there was one lone figure standing on the edge of the ocean looking out. The video then scans to a photo that shows a lone woman standing on the shore's edge with waves crashing in front of her. He continues. She was drinking a beer, I think. A split second after this picture was taken, a wave came in, hit the embankment below her feet, and knocked the sand out there, and she went sliding into the water. Video scans to a second photo that shows the woman lying in the shallow water, after the wave had retreated. She'd been knocked down. Then he says, I was probably 50 feet away from her, and 50 feet is not far. Shooting with a telephoto lens, and she was in the water, either in shock or drunk or whatever. I thought about, okay, am I going to take, uh, make a rescue? I, I already got the shot that I need. And then the video turns to a third photo that shows two men approaching the woman who has her hand outstretched. She's recognizing she's in some trouble. He said, I turned around, and within 100 feet of me, there's a lifeguard, so I continued to photograph the sequence. There was someone who was with the lifeguard who got there first, and he rushed to her, and he was ready to reach out and grab her and pull her to safety, but at the last second, something stopped him. And the next photo pictures two men backing off as a large wave prepares to crash on top of this helpless woman. He finished the story. The wave looked to me like it was 20 feet high. Within seconds after this photograph was taken, she was covered by the wave, and I realized that she was gone. The sequence of pictures received quite a bit of attention, and a lot of criticism came into that little newspaper about their photographer who watched somebody drown in the ocean while he just continued to take pictures of it. Later in the interview, he admits that he could have made a difference, but instead he chose to observe and take pictures Now he says he only takes easy and fun pictures because they're less of a burden. Taking pictures as a woman drowns. Watching things happen in the world around us when we have a right view of what should happen and yet we do nothing. Why are we capable of that? Why can we sit on the sidelines sort of of the world as it goes by as either great injustices or hardships take place 
when we have the truth? Are we simply numb because of information overload and that overwhelms us? And I think there's probably some truth to that. I mean, right now in the world, multiple wars, Ukraine, Israel, and the ones we're not talking about probably. I remember there was a, a mass genocide in Africa. My sister was a missionary there in Liberia. And in the early 90s when the Iraq war was going on with the U.S., there was a mass genocide going on in Africa. It got almost no press because of the big war that was going on. There's always stuff like that going on. So should we be thinking about Ukraine or Israel or the war we're not even aware of? Multiple natural disasters. There's always a hurricane. There's always an earthquake. There's always a landslide. There's always a tsunami. There's always tens of thousands of people dying around the world because of something that's going on. And it overwhelms us because we get all of it every day on the news. Ethnic cleansings. There's always an ethnic cleansing going on somewhere in the world. Multiple criminal ethical challenges. Any one cause can overwhelm us. Sex trafficking. The drug trade. Any one of these issues can be all-consuming if we care at all. Are we simply numb because of information overload? Or are we actually self-deluded, assuming we are what we believe? And this is actually a real thing. There have been studies on this where people, when they think a certain way, they actually assume that they're doing something about it just because they think correctly. This is a real thing. The word that is common out there, virtue signaling, is kind of the new hot phrase. It's not new to some of you. It's new to me because I'm always behind everything by about five or ten years. And that's a good thing sometimes. Virtue signaling, the expression of a self-righteous moral viewpoint with the intent of communicating good character. So we get all upset about things so other people think we're actually doing something about it. And I gotta tell you this, there are actual studies that conclude that once people have a correct perspective or a certain perspective on something, they actually believe that once they know something that they do it. It's not true. But that actually is a psychological phenomenon in human beings. If I believe the right thing, I must be doing the right thing. There's not true. A lot of us believe a lot of things that are right, and it doesn't mean we act. Every day we make the choice. It's the constant, continuous choice. It's the choice of what set of values we're going to live by. It's the choice of who and what we serve. It's the choice of whether or not we will swim against the current at all in a world that's going increasingly away from the Judeo-Christian ethic. It's the choice to disobey prevailing views or even the law and risk consequences. It's the choice to either take pictures as the world is drowning or drop our camera and do something about it and dive in if necessary and risk. And that's part of our story today. It's woven into the story of the next hero that's going to emerge in the text, and that we know him as Moses. Now, what's interesting is we're talking about the baby Moses, and he actually wrote the book of Exodus. So I don't want you to get that confused, because we will be talking about him as an infant, but he's actually the author of the text we're reading today as well, which is kind of interesting. He didn't write it when he was a baby. If you want to turn to Exodus chapter 1, it's on page 41 in the Bible in front of you, page 41. We're going to read Exodus chapter 1, we're going to talk through Exodus chapters 1 and 2. But we're going to read the first chapter, Exodus chapter 1, page 41. Now neither, these are the names of the sons of Israel 
who came to Egypt with Jacob. They each they came each one with his household. So it's you know these are sort of the parents and they've got children, etc. So there's going to be a clan of about seventy, and here are the sons that are part of that clan. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt. There's three sort of different contextual starting points here. You got verses one through seven, then eight through 14, and 15 to the end of the chapter. Here's the next section here. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they'll multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. They built for Pharaoh storage cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. And then here's the next section. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. And this is the section we're going to talk about most today. One of whom was named Shipra, and the other was named Pua. Some great girls' names if you're pregnant. Shipra and Pua. If you have twins, Shipra, Pua. And he said, when you, help, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. Now the assumption here is that these are Egyptian midwives, that these are not Jewish women. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, they lied, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty, because the midwives feared God. These are pagan women. They feared God. He established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. He made it a national policy now. Just a couple of points that are going to be context, and then we're going to dive into the story of these midwives and a little of the next chapter. First, God fulfilled his promise, the man became the nation. Now, the first two points here, again, are just context for the book of Exodus. So stay with me, but it's important you understand this. Moses wrote this book, and he writes this book, obviously, later as he's an adult, he put together Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But the book, right in its first verse, is skipping several hundred years of history. And he actually uses a little conjunction. It could be and, here it's now. It's just a little conjunction. And that's what writers would do often in the Old Testament to show that they're continuing the history from the last book. So in a sense, he's saying now, and he's connecting Genesis to Exodus, even though there's three to 400 years of separation, he's connecting it with that little conjunction saying, now I'm continuing the story. But he has skipped a lot. 
this early section is letting us know that what God promised in Genesis 12 to Abraham has actually happened. Several hundred years have gone by since they've been in Egypt, and hundreds of years have gone by since Genesis chapter 12 before that, where God said to Moses or to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. You're going to be a blessing to the whole world. So God made this covenant, this, this deal with Abraham, that he would become a people. And that now has happened. And that's what Moses is writing here. Seventy people went to Egypt. Now, I'm not sure about this, and I don't know if anyone knows this, but remember when, when Abraham was with Sarai and they didn't even have one child of their own, there were like hundreds of people connected to his clan that worked with him and so on, and he was a man of great wealth. I'm assuming a lot of that clan went down to Egypt as well. I don't know if they assimilated into Israel, became part of the nation. I just don't know that. But at a minimum, we have 70 people who went into Egypt Joseph, remember years before, the lost son who had been sold into slavery in Egypt has risen in power and position enough to rescue them because he you know, became this person. I'll talk about it in a few moments, why he became powerful. But he became powerful in Egypt and he rescued the nation. They were given a fertile area to shepherd in the Nile Delta and then hundreds of years of prosperity turned them from clan of 70 people to nation of most likely, when I think of this time in Israel's history, two to three million people. Seventy people to two to three million over many hundreds of years. Note verse seven, it's why Moses writes it. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. What he's saying is the promise to Abraham in Genesis is now fulfilled. It's what was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's acknowledged by Egypt's king as well. They're now a threat. The purpose of Israel, remember, was a man would become a nation. That nation would be a light to the world because they would obey the true God and God would bless them and they would be a light to other nations. That's what happens when God creates the covenant with Israel and then through that nation we get a savior. We know that savior as Jesus. Beginning of Exodus, that has progressed significantly. God's plan to reach humanity, we now have a nation. But unfortunately, it's taken place outside of the promised land. It's taken place in a hostile area. Wasn't hostile, but now it is, and that's a problem. Which leads us to the second point that Moses is making. Joseph's legacy was lost. Israel has now become a perceived threat. Now again, this is just context. We're getting through this quickly so you understand what happens with the third point. So, hundreds of years have passed since Joseph rescued Israel and Egypt. Remember, Joseph went down to Egypt as a slave. He was a bit of a difficult brother. His 11 brothers couldn't stand him anymore. They sold him as a slave down into Egypt. He rose to a position of power and influence there. Pharaoh had dreams, seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. He didn't know how to interpret them. Joseph, the slave, interpreted those dreams, suggested a solution that during the seven years of plenty, when crops would grow and herds would multiply, that Pharaoh should put a 20% tax on everything in order to prepare for the seven years of famine. That program saved Egypt. And because he came up with the solution and he interpreted the dream, Pharaoh took this young boy 
from a foreign country who was a slave and a prisoner and elevated him to second in command in the nation. And God was with Joseph. And Joseph even understood and even said it was God that brought him into slavery because of how God changed the history around his life. Egypt was saved. During that time, the Israelites from nearby come down to Egypt and they are saved. And Joseph has this reconciliation with his brothers. But that was hundreds of years before. Now Israel has multiplied to two to three million people. And the pharaohs who remember Joseph and his people fondly are long dead. And Israel is a rapidly expanding minority group. And they could sway the balance of power in a regional war. And Pharaoh knows it. So the atrocities begin. Free people overnight become slaves under a new national policy. Cities are built with slave labor. We actually know where these are, these tells as they're called in that part of the world, in the Nile Delta. We actually know the Egyptian dynasty that probably did this. We believe it's probably the Hyksos dynasty. The Israelites were made slaves in construction, farming, and more. All kinds of labor in the field. But they still multiplied. So then, there was another policy. Genocide. First, quietly. Two midwives, Shepra and Pua, were actually most likely over a whole guild or trade of midwives because you have a couple of million people. They're over a whole group of midwives and they're instructed to go to all of their women and to tell them that when little children are born, check the sex and if it's a little boy, when they're being cleaned up away from mom, to basically smother them or choke them and kill them. And that leads us to what I want to focus on today. A choice for everyone how to function in a world hostile to God. These midwives, it's an interesting story. It's one of the clear purposes of the text. And actually Moses gives us an unusual amount of detail about this little guild of midwives and the two leaders of it, who he gives us by name, which is fascinating because these are most likely Egyptian women. They're not Hebrew women. And after we see their choices, we also see the choices, again, in a hostile world of Moses' own parents, and then of Moses himself. We're going to talk about that at the end of this chapter and the next chapter, which we didn't read. But Shifra and Pua are given orders to instruct their guild of women to commit genocide against little baby boys. And Moses actually gives us a lot of insight into this story, which is one of the reasons I believe Moses really wants us to see the, the sort of the broad context of and what happens in their lives because it says they actually feared God. It just doesn't say what they did but their motivation. They feared God. And I believe this is a God they didn't necessarily know in a very significant way. And so commentators sort of wonder, what is it that caused these women to understand how they should position themselves with the Pharaoh's orders? And it's one of a couple of things. Either the relics of their own ancient religion respected life, or it was simply common grace, which is what we refer to theologically, the reason we're not all worse than we could be. 
that God's common grace, by putting his image in us, gives all of us a sense of morality. We know there are lines, whether we know the true God or not. It's the law of God, as Paul says in Romans, written on our hearts. But either way, Shifra and Pua, we're not going to do this. Their vocation was a vocation to facilitate the gift of life, and that's why they wanted to be midwives. They, they, they love bringing life into the world, and they would not participate in this death. So, for a while, Pharaoh's walking around, and maybe he's out there on a horse or a camel. I don't know what Pharaoh rode, or maybe he's being carried in his little cart, but he starts seeing all these little Jewish boys that keep appearing. You know, there's a bunch of little Jewish baby boys nursing along the street with their moms. And he's thinking, what is going on here? I gave orders. So he calls Shipra and Pua in. And, and I love this. And, and actually, what's funny, if you're in a Christian ethics class in seminary, you'll actually debate this stuff. You know, they lied to Pharaoh. You know, yeah, they did. And, and based on the authority of the word of God, I'm saying if you're commanded to do genocide against babies, you can lie to government authorities. And if you're commanded to expose Jews in the Holocaust, you can lie to the Gestapo. It's okay. You have my approval. And I think God's. Anyway, those are interesting debates in ethics class. Is it ever right to do the wrong thing? Well, they lied, and I think we're all okay with it. So they're challenged by Pharaoh for their failure. And they didn't defy him directly. They didn't say, we're not going to obey you. They said, we're just always late. I mean, these Jewish women, I mean, they're some tough birds. I mean, they, they're pregnant, they go into labor, and before we get there, they're just putting these babies out, and we're too late. I mean, that's literally what they told Pharaoh. So Pharaoh, who didn't have a background in midwifery, made a private policy that he had kept secret up until now into a national policy of genocide, and he commanded that all Jewish boys need to die, and the scripture said in verse 22, he said that to all his people. Well, now there's no hiding it. Now it's not the midwives in the birthing room. Now it's out there without shame. A national policy to exterminate these little Jewish boys. But in this text about Shifra and Pua, We've got these multiple phrases about their relationship with God in this decision-making process. Verse 17, they feared God. This is not necessary. We don't need this part of the story. We could skip to Moses' birth and never learn about this. This is why I believe really Moses wants us to see this as a principle in our lives. They feared God, verse 17, and it says in verse 20 that God responded to them. God was good to the midwives. Because the midwives feared God, verse 21, he established households for them. In other words, he made them fruitful. They're protecting these little Jewish children. He says, you're going to have more kids than you know what to do with. I'm just going to bless you incredibly. And this is all included in this sort of this little pericope about these midwives. It's an interesting insertion into the text. It's not necessary to the story. We can get to chapter 2 and the birth of Moses without these details. But the story of these two women and their courage is intentional and it continues with two more stories of people saying, no, I will not do the wrong thing, come hell or high water, pharaoh or king, it doesn't matter, I will live a righteous life. And we see that in the next couple of stories. 
It's part of the Moses story. Their motivation was simple, the fear of God. Now, what's the fear of God? I mean, some would say there is sometimes in the Old Testament sort of a terrifying fear of God. We tend to look at it as a reverential fear of God, sort of reverence for him. I like putting it this way, layman's terms. They were more afraid of disappointing God than they were afraid of Pharaoh. They were more afraid of disappointing God than anything else. Their lives are at risk. They could be executed this, for this. They should have been. Their lives are at risk, yet they chose to do the right thing no matter what. The ethics of an unseen deity, the God of heaven, written on their hearts, was more powerful than the threat of a very real and present human king, Pharaoh, whose presence they were in quite often. And yet they're more afraid of the unseen God. They feared God. And this unseen God that we follow rewarded them. And I want to park here. Two women in an ancient culture where king equals law and authority. There's not a set of laws you have to abide by. If the king tells you to do something, you do it or your head rolls. Those two women defy that authority. Live by a higher law. Answer to a higher authority. Are more afraid to disappoint an unseen God than the seen authority in front of them. And the question I want to ask is, are we, are we more afraid of disappointing God than we are of the pressure around us to conform? and be silent, and be part of things that we shouldn't. Next, you have this theme kind of continuing. And I'm not sure if this is as intentional as the first example, which is clearly intentional in Moses' part, but it fits. Next, it's a couple descended from Levi that became the tribe of Levi eventually. So chapter two, this couple descended from Levi Father's descended from Levi, so is the mother. They have a baby boy, Jewish boy, Hebrew boy. The national policy is now genocide. At this point, Pharaoh has said to all of his people, this is what we're going to do. We're killing Jewish boys. Now, I don't know this, and I can't imagine this, because to me, this is where you just, you know, you die at that point defending your family. But I don't know how many parents simply felt helpless. We are mere slaves God has forgotten us all, and there was good reason to believe that. This was a great time for doubt. I would have said the same thing. We've lost our self-determination. The promises to Abraham seem to be dead. Maybe God is dead. We have no choices. So did people actually capitulate to this policy? I don't know. But I know that these parents are recorded as basically saying to themselves, we always have the choice. We never lose the choice of who we obey, who we live for, and who we fear in this life. It doesn't matter what happens around us. It doesn't matter what we are told to do. We always have the choice of our own integrity in what we will be. In Hebrews 11, not included in this text, it says... Moses' parents were not afraid of the king's edict. I love that. A couple of slaves 
in the Nile Delta, and it's recorded in Hebrews 11, they're not afraid of Pharaoh. Because they had made their choice. We don't fear that. We do the right thing. So mom created a little boat made of reeds. And she waterproofed it with tar and pitch. And we, we often, you know, when you're in Sunday school, your kids are in Sunday school, they, they bring home the little picture of Moses. And he's kind of in like a wicker Easter basket of sorts, you know. And it kind of looks like he could crawl out and drown, doesn't it? You know, it's, but it's likely that he was, you know, like a little bit more like when you keep the moth at home fully covered with air holes. It's more likely that kind of situation, you know. She makes this little boat for him. And she places it by the Nile's edge in the marsh because at three months of age, she couldn't keep him quiet at home anymore. She couldn't keep him in hiding. She'd been nursing him. She's been putting her hand over his mouth, but she can't, she can't shut him up anymore. He's a three-month-old boy. Y'all get that, right, ladies? He's a three-month-old boy. You can't shut him up. In fact, at three months old, you can't shut him up till he dies. His aunt kept watching from a distance to see what would happen. So they've got the little boy planted by the marsh. marsh. Maybe they even knew this would potentially happen. We don't know. The aunt is keeping watch from a distance. Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, comes by to hear the muffled cries of this little baby. She went and had one of her servants go get him, and she immediately knew the origin, because why would an Egyptian woman put her baby in the edge of the marsh? She knew this is a Hebrew boy, of course. We've got this policy of genocide. Interestingly, the aunt nearby said, hey, good to see you, princess. It's in the Hebrew. Good to see you, princess. Can I find a mother to wet nurse this baby for you? And Pharaoh's princess daughter says, well, sure. And guess who is chosen? Moses' natural mother is paid to nurse him and keep him until he was weaned. And the princess named Moses, drawn out, because I've drawn him out of the water. He was given back to mom for a few years until he's weaned, and there he is raised with the knowledge of his origins and his God. Because mom and dad said, we don't fear the Pharaoh. We're going to do the right thing. We're going to protect life at all costs. And then once he grew... Moses had the choice as well. Once he became aware of his people's sufferings, he saw his people in bondage, he saw them beaten, he saw them as slaves. Now he has a choice to make, the choice. Hebrews 11, 23, and 24 puts it this way. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. My eyesight is not good enough for that. Because they saw he was a beautiful, sorry about the glare, because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Think about that. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The next verse says he chose the suffering to suffer with God's people rather than the pleasures of sin for a season. But he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Think about that choice. Think about the privilege that this young man is, is raised with. Think about the, the temptation to say, man, I was born a, a Hebrew. Thank God the princess found me. Because look at the life I have. I'm going to choose to be an Egyptian. 
Why on earth would I want a part of my history and culture? I'm going to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Identify as the prince, not the slave. But one day when he was grown, he was observing the plight of his people, and he knew he was a Hebrew. And he observed the beating of one of his fellow Hebrews by an Egyptian who was cruel. And there Moses made his choice. Son of the princess or son of slaves? Brother of slaves, inheritor of God's promises to his ancestors that seemed forgotten by that God. And he chose God's people and his God. And he rose up and he killed that Egyptian. Now, because of that, he became a fugitive. Now, I think there have been commentators in history who have actually said, like, that wasn't wrong. I, I, most commentators today would say, that actually was murder. He really couldn't do that, but it made him a fugitive. And Pharaoh wanted to kill him after that. But it still was his moment of choice. The commentator, Moses here, does not actually comment on the ethics of his actions. Most commentators would say, yeah, actually he committed murder there. But he made the choice that he would be a part of God's people, though perhaps in an inappropriate way. He made that choice and he killed the person who was killing his own people. And he decided, I identify with Israel. I identify with the God of Israel. I identify with my ancestors. I identify with the promise to Abraham. When he asked the question, who am I? He made the choice. I'm, I'm, I'm actually one of them. And I'm going to give all this up to be one of them. I want to close with two quick questions. First, what do I fear most? On October 27, 1962, that was two days before I was born, which I know that means I'm not 41 like I lie about, I am 61. I know many of you knew that, and I don't consider it lying when you all know I'm lying. It's kind of like with Christmas presents and your kids. It's not a lie when nobody believes you. All right. October 27, 1962, two days before I was born, the world almost ended. The world as we know it was almost over. One man, Vasily Arkhipov, displayed the virtue of self-control that kept it from happening. He was the second in command of the Soviet submarine B-59 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The submarine was located deep underwater near Cuba and unable to receive outside communication due to mandated radio silence. The crew had not heard anything from Moscow because of that in days when they were detected by the U.S. Navy. The Americans released explosives, as Americans do, intended to force B-59 to the surface. The crew were unsure how to proceed. They're dealing with, you know, basically mines in the water, trying to blow them to the surface. Battery power in the submarine was dwindling. The extreme heat in the vessel became unbearable. Some members of the crew suspected that war had already broken out between the East, and the West, and they wanted to launch nuclear warheads towards the U.S. mainland to aid the Soviet offensive. Of course, if war had not broken out and they do that, that action would begin the war and likely result in global devastation because there were going to be missiles raining down in both countries at that point. 
The captain and the third in command both wanted to launch missiles. But Soviet protocol required that all three officers make the unanimous decision to strike. And Arkhipov wanted to think about it. He eventually decided he would not agree to the launch and instead would wait for orders. So they were one person on a submarine short of raining missiles on the US, which would have started a global conflict. As Arkhipov's cooler head prevailed, the sub surfaced. The US Navy surrounded them and forced them to return to the Soviet Union in shame. And for years, Arkhipov endured taunts in the Soviet Union for choosing to surface. However, in 2002, Robert McNamara, former US Secretary of Defense, publicly acknowledged that Arkhipov's decision prevented a nuclear war at the most dangerous moment in human history. Interesting, my arrival into the world is viewed as the most dangerous moment in human history. It's becoming clearer now. Arkhipov is a notable example of someone who displayed self-control and integrity despite direct pressure to do the opposite. He feared the right thing. He feared the right thing and prevented a world war. He cared about right over reputation. He feared the right thing. He didn't care what people thought of him afterwards. He was vilified for decades. The fear of God should be at the top of our list. What's the number one thing you care about? I, I care about not disappointing God. That, that should be the answer. I don't want to disappoint God. Well, how are you going to fit into this world? I don't want to disappoint God. What do you do when all the people at work you know, say one thing and you're the only person who disagrees? You know, just be quiet about everything for the rest of our lives because we don't want to disagree. I don't want to disappoint God. So whatever God wants me to do, he doesn't ask me to be a jerk, but, but I don't think I'm supposed to be silent my whole life either. I don't want to disappoint God. What do I fear most? Second, will I do the right thing no matter the cost? This story kind of has some civil disobedience stuff built into it too, which... Paul talks about a little bit in Romans and Acts. You see some examples of that. And that's really not the purpose of my story, but it, it, it's relevant. We're increasingly headed for a hostile culture in the Western world. There's a sermon I could preach today here that would get me fined in the city of Calgary about human sexuality. That's already been passed by the Calgary City Council and some national laws in Canada about human sexuality. And that would get a fine, and if I don't pay the fine, I'd be in jail in Canada. I don't care. I don't care. I assume you'd feed me. Take care of Dee Dee. Don't let her go back to visit her kids. Leave me in Canada in prison. What should we fear? We should fear disappointing God above all else. That's what we should fear. In the book, The Zookeeper's Wife, author Diane Ackerman describes the brutal occupation of Warsaw by the Nazis. The Warsaw Zoo became a hiding place for members of the resistance and for Jewish refugees. Keeping one person alive often required putting a great many in jeopardy. It tested them nonstop as this group of people, the resistors, would resist both propaganda and death threats. Yet 70 to 90,000 people in Warsaw, Poland, about one-twelfth of the city's population, 
was involved in the underground. They risked their lives to help neighbors escape. Besides the rescuers and underground helpers, there were maids and postmen and milkmen and many others who didn't inquire about extra faces or extra mouths to feed when all of a sudden they're delivering more bread and delivering more milk. And it's because Jews are being hidden in these homes. To change the world, we we risk. We fear the right things and we we risk and, and we don't care what it costs us. You want to meet my disciples, you carry your cross. You, you joined a movement of martyrs. That's, that's what we joined. We didn't just embrace Jesus and we've got like hell insurance. We're going to get to heaven. It's a movement of people who fear God above all else. Therefore, we can't completely be silenced because we're trying to be salt and light in a world that desperately needs us. And the world needs its Christians to risk a little more to not be silenced, to be the stubborn conscience of all that is good in a world that increasingly doesn't believe in good. And that's what God wants us to be. He wants us to be like Shifra and Pua and like Moses' parents and like Moses, except for that murder thing, like Moses, to fear God above all else. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the story of a group of people who decided it it doesn't matter what the world demands of them. It doesn't matter what the world says to them about what is right and wrong. There was a higher calling in their life. There was a belief that there was a God, an unseen God, who would demand accountability of them. And these two women who led this group of women decided to obey that voice, that God. Thank you for their example. May we be like them. May we be like Moses' parents. Doesn't matter what, what's said and what's required. We, we've just got to do the right thing. May we be like Moses saying, I'm going I'm to identify with God and his people. It, I, it doesn't matter what this world has to offer. We, we make that choice. Help us to be like them, to follow those examples. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.